If you could, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Today's sermon will be chapters 13 through 19, and we will be reading from chapter 14. So if you could open to Joshua 14. The word of God reads, Now these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance. By the lot of their inheritance, as the Lord commanded through Moses for the nine tribes and the half tribe. For Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half tribe beyond the Jordan, but he did not give an inheritance to the Levites among them. For the sons of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they did not give a portion to the Levites in the land, except cities to live in with their pasture lands for their livestock and for their property. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they divided the land. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to them, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought, back, I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years, from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became an, the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray once again in preparation to hear now from the word of the Lord. Lord God, again, week in and week out, we confess that we are a desperately needy people, that is, in need of your grace, both to hear, to receive, to apply your word, and for me, to declare your truth by the power of your spirit, helpless in myself. So grant the grace this morning, we pray in this hour. For Christ's sake, amen. Dividing the promised inheritance. Dividing the promised inheritance. That's the title of this morning's message. And as uh, we prepare to hear um, a reminder for each and every one of us, 
that is that the Bible's not primarily about us. The Bible is not an anthropocentric book. The Bible is first and foremost a theocentric book. It is the revelation of the living God. It is about his character. It is about his mighty works. It is about his decrees and his glorious work of redemption. The Bible. So when we come to any text, we should never ask, what does this text mean to me? Quite frankly, it doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what does it mean by what it says? You never want to be in a Bible study. He says, what does that verse mean to you? No, what does it mean? Primarily, what we ought to ask is, what does this text say about God? Amen? Amen. Now, what we've witnessed over the months in the book of Joshua is that the word of God shows us that God is faithful in fulfilling his promises. Over and over and over again, he is faithful. That is, after Israel was delivered out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt, they entered covenant with Yahweh at Mount Sinai. And then after wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, according to God's promise, conquering the great city of Jericho, moving from there and conquering the city of Ai. Back in chapter 10, we looked at the defeat and execution of that coalition of five Amorite kings that dared to stand against Israel, followed by the execution and an invasion of southern Canaan. And then last time in chapter 11, we looked at Israel's conquest of the northern kingdom, where after seven years of war, chapter 11 and verse 23, Joshua simply says, and the land had rest from war. The promise has become reality. Notice in Joshua 12, you see a list <laughs> a detailed list of 31 kings defeated by Moses and Joshua. In verses 1 through 6, we see the kings that were conquered under the leadership of Moses, that is, on the eastern side of the Jordan, followed by the list of kings conquered under Joshua's leadership. Remember, he had taken the mantle from Moses. Moses died in the wilderness. We see a list of those kings in verses 7 through 24. So in summary... Chapters 1 through 4 of Joshua dealt with Israel's entrance into the promised land. And then chapters 5 through 12, that was the conquering of the promised land. And here now we shift from conquest, okay, from battle, to the distribution of that land, the land God promised. So chapters 13 through 21... Um, contain a lengthy and very detailed description of how that land 
was divided up. It's kind of like the reading of a will, really. It's just this massive estate that's being divided up among family members. And as you read your Bible, Christian, you grow to learn that details are very important. Thank you. Thank you. You can say amen here. When it's meaningful. (laughs) Details are important because God is a God of detail. Underlining the fact that, that God keeps his promises down to the last iota. That is every jot in every tittle. Detail. So all that being said, while all of this is very, very important information, chapters 13 through uh, 19 specifically, uh, it's just not very preachable. So what we're going to do is fast forward through much of the land allotment and highlight some key factors throughout chapters 13 through 19, and they are all very applicable lessons for us as we walk by faith through this life, moving on towards the promised land. Ultimately, not the intermediate state, that when you die, you go to heaven, but ultimately, New heaven, new earth, and resurrected bodies like our Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is intermediate. Glorified bodies on a resurrected earth. Amen? That's where we're headed, ultimately. And what we're going to do is we're going to keep with our theme from last week, and that is the theme of perseverance, to never, never give in in the words of Winston Churchill, (laughs) from whom I quoted last week. Never give in, but keep walking by faith. Now, we were reminded also last Lord's Day that it is very characteristic of our Lord to give us easy victories early on in our Christian walk, to encourage us. Like Israel was encouraged when they just watched the walls of Jericho fall. They didn't have to lift a finger. They, They saw a glimpse of the glorious power of their Savior. But then God calls us to engage. He calls us to engage, to labor with our might in future victories of battle. So this morning, we will observe some things that can hinder, disturb, or distract us from pressing on to triumph in Christ. Again, we will see this morning some things that can hinder, disturb, and distract us from pressing on to triumph in Christ as believers. And then we'll conclude with a look at Caleb's life from which Sean just read in chapter 14. Caleb, Joshua's faithful companion. Caleb, a man whose confidence was in God's power and presence and not in his own strength. Don't walk through this life in your own strength. Don't dare attempt that. You will fail. Witness from the congregation? Yeah? 
He was a man who, who eagerly anticipated the fulfillment of God's promises, and then he claimed those promises in the name of the Lord. He's a man who, who stood against the tide of popular opinion when God's glory was at stake. We'll be reminded of all this this morning, so you're going to have to stay engaged because we have a lot of ground to cover. Amen? Very, very applicable. The church today needs men and women like Caleb who press on to triumph in Christ. After all, we have been given already every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1. They're, they're already ours. Many times we don't claim them, we don't, we don't walk in them. So we need to walk like a Caleb regardless of fear and most certainly regardless of popular consensus. There are a lot of spineless men who call themselves preachers running churches today based on popular consensus. Not, not so here, amen? Before we get to Caleb, we see another prime example of pressing on, remaining faithful to the end. And that, of course, is the life of Joshua. Israel now dwells in the land of promise, promised some 600 plus years before their inheritance. 600 plus years. So here now, Joshua, look at chapter 13. You're going to be flipping the pages now. Chapter 13, verse 1. Joshua, we read, was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. <laughs> Isn't that great? I've laughed at that like probably five times this week. Notice, he's an old man who's now involved in a great administrative undertaking. His work is not done. He's now called to divide up an entire country to allot portions throughout the land of Canaan. Now, jump over to chapter 14. We see there in verses 1 and 2, Joshua, he's the administrative, political, military leader. He sat down with Eleazar, the, the priest, the spiritual leader, and one representative from every one of the remaining nine and a half tribes. You say, nine and a half? I thought there were 12. There were. But remember that the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh took their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. Okay, and we're going to get to that. There's some great application there for us today. So we'll get back to that. But the first lesson we see here this morning is that for Joshua, as well as for Caleb, any notion, any notion of spiritual retirement has no foundation in Scripture whatsoever. I can, I can say with authority from the Bible that it is not the will of God for your life to spiritually retire. Now, vocational retirement, of course, that's one thing. Yes, well, <laughs> but spiritual retirement? No. Even preachers retire from preaching. But you never retire from ministering as a Christian. Never. Look what the Apostle Paul said as an old man. Philippians 3, verse 13. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice what he does not say. One thing I do, remembering the things are, that are behind so now I can sit down. I've met a lot of yesterday people throughout my time in ministry. Boy, back in the day, we used to do this. I used to do that, had this, had that, had this going. What are you doing now? Resting. <laughs> Paul knew only one direction, forward until the moment of death. Take a look at Psalm 92 from our, our reading just moments ago. Psalm 92, verse 12. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. To declare the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. They're still flourishing. They're old and they still want to talk about God's uprightness, steadiness, and righteousness. When they're old, they don't turn bitter into in inward and sit at home and sulk. They still bear fruit. Amen. Senior saints, can I get a witness? For real. So here's Joshua, a model for serving late in life. And you know he's full of experience and wisdom. We need that wisdom. He's been consistent throughout. This is a great lesson for all of us. And th there's a refrain that marks Joshua from chapter 13 on. And that is he does exactly what he's told to do. He divides up the land. Doing exactly what God told him to do, Joshua, the lesser Joshua, is a foreshadowing of the greater Joshua. Remember, Jesus, his name is Joshua, just the Greek version of Joshua. The word Joshua, the name Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is salvation. And when he came to earth, he said, I always do the will of my father. And the, the, the father's intention was to fulfill his word, and Jesus is the word fulfilled. He is the word. He came to this earth to do a work in obedience to his father. He, God the father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Jesus was obedient moment by moment, faithfully, truthfully, perfectly. So when we trust in Christ, his perfect obedience is placed upon our record. If you're not a Christian here, you need a righteousness that you do not have. It has to be perfect. It must be flawless. It must be sinless. Therefore, you need Christ's righteousness placed upon your account. You must repent. You must believe. And if you entrust yourself to Christ, you'll realize that all of your sins were placed upon him on that cross. And all of his righteousness is placed upon your account. So as a Christian, you can be certain at this moment that you have everlasting life. So we must press on. So Joshua, here's a man marked by faith, 
trusting in the Lord, a man who's never too old to obey and never too old to serve. That's the first lesson that we see from that brother. Now, we also see in this long section um, a dangerous topic, um, an, an ominous theme, and a menacing threat. Turn to chapter, if you're not there already, chapter 13 and verse 13. Look at it. But the sons of Israel did not dispossess the Geshurites or the Machathites, for Geshur and Makath live among Israel until this day. Okay, that is, the nations were not yet fully dis dispossessed of this land. In other words, Israel is not demonstrating a complete follow-through on the destruction of their enemies. Look at chapter 15, verse 63. Now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah, could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. Was that 1563? Okay, look at chapter 16, verse 10. But they did not drive out the Canaanites who, who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. In other words, they, they, they failed to take over what God had given them. Chapter 17, verse 12. But the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of the cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land then the issue just becomes monotonous. And we all know that it will come back to bite them in years to come. <laughs> Nevertheless, look at Joshua chapter 18, verse 3. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, how long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Now, make no mistake about it, Israel dominates the land. I mean, they did not conquer all the land without exception initially because the individual tribes were supposed to continue to conquer in the territories given to them. But they did not. So the, the fact that they allowed these Canaanites to dwell in the land was just straight up stark disobedience. How do we know that? Because the Lord said so back in Deuteronomy 7. Turn there. Or no, I have that. You don't have to turn. <laughs> I have to turn. Chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus 
you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their ashram, burn their graven images with fire. Oh, that's not very nice. No, that's right. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So kill them all. The order to destroy the enemy is so that they will not be tempted by the idolatry of God's enemies, the Canaanites. Now, they began with a total extermination of that enemy. We've seen it over the weeks, but then they allow for the exception. They cheat here, they fudge there, which means there are free radicals, medical people, free radicals in the land, like free radicals in the body that that rob other cells of their electrons, right? For the most part, causing damage and disease. Free radicals, they seek to to attach themselves to to other things and corrupt those things. Our problem to this day is believers, is to allow free radicals, spiritually speaking, to exist in our lives. That is a hindrance, that is a disturbance that will keep any Christian from pressing on to triumph in Christ, each and every one of us. So when, when Joshua asked there, look, back in verse 3, how long will you put off entering to take possession of the land? He does not ask that rhetorically, okay? He, he's not opting for a debate here. He's confronting, he's rebuking, he's admonishing them. He doesn't wait for a reply. He moves on. He says, I'm going to do something about it. And you see to it that the people respond in obedience. Go out and survey the land. What a great leader. Enemies must be expelled because free radicals will corrupt. Moving on. Another matter that he deals with is one that will also hinder, disturb, or distract us from pressing on to triumph in Christ, and that is discontentment and complaint. Chapter 17. Context, the the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, that is the sons of Joseph, the, the offspring of Joseph, they see the land that they've been given, and notice their response in verse 14. Why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance? Since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed. In other words, we're a huge tribe. We deserve more than this. This this plot of land is beneath us, Joshua. You, You need to recognize our superiority. And perhaps they're trying to play on Joshua's emotions here because according to Numbers 13 and verse 8, Joshua is also from the tribe of Ephraim. So it's kind of like, come on, Josh, bro, (laughs) bruh, it's family. Verse 15, Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, 
Go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself. There in the land for the Perizzites, there, there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Now, they continue to complain, verse 16. Joshua doesn't debate, verse 17. You're a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. Go clear it out. Stop whining. See, he reveals two problems, discontentment and a lack of faith. Our problem to this day with regard to roles, responsibilities, relationships, we can just never seem to get over this. Why all the tension all the time? Why is it the same problem? It's never a matter of a lack of being gifted a lack of abilities, let alone a lack of information, because we have the living word of God that instructs us. Our problems come from discontentment and laziness. You're having problems in your marriage or relationship with someone in the church? You're a Christian, you know the word of God, so go home and do what? Apply it. Clear out the land, man. It's yours. Clear it out. Just apply it. Because excuses will hinder, disturb, and distract us from pressing on to triumph in Christ. Clear out the land. Someone will come to Pacific Hope Church, become a member, stay a while, disappear, you catch up with him, say, what's wrong? Yeah, I, I just don't have much in common with these people. What do you mean these people? well, I'm single and there's a lot of families. Or I'm a 20-something and there's not a lot of 20-somethings in the church. What do you mean there's no commonality? Are you a blood-bought sinner saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Um, yes. Are you justified? Yes. Sanctified? You have the Spirit of God? You have the gifts of the Spirit? Yes, yes, yes. Then stop whining. That's how I counsel. Stop being so discontent and lazy. Press on by faith because guess what? This isn't about you. That's what Joshua was saying. Go clear the land then. Love the word of God. Because if people say that you're cranky, I'm saying that's what the word says, man. <laughs> Okay, so discontentment and laziness, that's another example. Moving on, another issue that will hinder, disturb, and distract us from pressing on to triumph in Christ is what Warren Wearsby calls being a borderline believer. A borderline believer. Back to chapter 2, verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 2. The inheritance allotment. Notice. Israel's inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one half tribes. Again, because the other two and a half tribes, why not 12? Because the other two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they asked Moses back in Numbers 23, hey, you know something? We really like it over here. 
We don't need to cross. We'll just stay here because it is ideal for raising cattle. Remember that? So Moses agreed, but the agreement was, look, so long as you cross and fight once the war is over, then you can head back. But one interesting point is that there's no record of Moses consulting the Lord in that matter. And then later in Joshua 22, living outside the land gave the impression that they were not Israelites. So when they return on their way back, they make a monument. Their actions are misunderstood, and we read that Israel prepared to make war against them. Praise God, it never happened, but it was close. Why? Because they had separated themselves from the blessings of the land of Canaan. God promised to bless the land of Canaan. These two and a half tribes were, were farther away from the tabernacle, which represents the presence of God, and causing them to live closer to the enemy. Because they made their decision not on the basis of spiritual values, but on the basis of material gain. So the term borderline believer that I got from Wearsby portrays believers who've experienced the blessings and battles of Canaan, that is, i.e., their inheritance in Christ, but they prefer to live on the border. On the border. Outside of God's appointed place of blessing, and they become more comfortable being around unbelievers. I pointed this out last week. Sometimes believers, Christians, true Christians, are just more comfortable being around unbelievers because, unfortunately, they have a lot more in common. And it makes them nervous to be around spirit-filled Christians. So borderline belief is one sure way to hinder or, or straight-up halt pressing on to triumph in Christ. For we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen? All right. Let's look on now and look at the, or let's move on rather and look at the remarkable testimony of Caleb found back in chapter 14, 6 through 7, or 6 through 15 actually. So here then, context, is the tribe of Judah is about to receive their inheritance. Mention is made of Caleb, one of Judah's most celebrated sons. And he now recounts his role. Notice verse 6. Then the sons of Judah drew near Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and, and the, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kanesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word. I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Now, remember, Caleb was with, was with Joshua from the very beginning. He was 40 years old when he and Joshua and 10 other spies were sent by Moses to scout out the land of Canaan. And that was shortly after the Exodus, beloved. Shortly after, within two years. 
or less probably. And so he recounts how that event led that generation of Israelites who left Egypt being forced now to wander for 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai because of their unbelief. Look at it. Pick it up in verse 8. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord, my God, fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord, my God, fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I'm 85 years old today. I'm still as strong, as strong today I was, as I was on the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country. Give me my land about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there. Remember the giants? The giants were there with the great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Remember, Joshua and Caleb came to Kadesh Barnea as two of the 12 spies who believed God. Only two believed, Joshua, Caleb. Go in, take the land. He says, we'll take it. Let's go. But the majority report of the other 10 told terrifying tales of walled cities and giants, the Anakim, seeing themselves as grasshoppers in the land. Gripped by fear. Not Caleb. When the others saw giants, Caleb saw God. Almighty God. When the others saw dangerous enemies, Caleb, he saw defeated foes. And abundant fruit. Remember the grapes? Took two men just to carry a load of grapes. In other words, Caleb never wavered in his belief that Yahweh would keep his promise, give Israel the land, despite the reputation that the Canaanites had of being savage warriors. Let's go. He says, give me this hill country. <laughs> Any remaining Anakim, I will drive out as the Lord has spoken. Why such confidence in this man? His anchor of faith. When Caleb approaches Joshua, notice everything he says here, everything he requests is based on the word of God, based on the promises of God. That is faith. Faith, friends, faith, not in feelings. Don't put your fa faith in feelings. It's not faith in faith. You know, just pump it up, brother. The object of faith is God, not faith. Not faith in faith, but God. And how does God communicate to us? By way of words. His faith was in God, the God who speaks, which makes Caleb's faith the biblical pattern we ought to follow, taking the promises of God, 
turn them into prayers and plead them back to God. God promises, I'll pray what he promises, plead those promises back to God. Because true faith always functions in that way. It anchors itself in the word of God. And then it pleads the promises of God. You ever do that? Read the Psalms. As you read the Psalms, look at the context so that you understand it, and then just take those pleas, those cries, those hurts, those pains, those victories, and pray them back to God for your own life and those around you. Amen? So it's not so much having great faith, that is great faith, emphasis, great faith in God that is required but rather faith in the great God. And there's only one, the great God. There's no other foundation for faith. This is what we learned from Caleb. So here now is an old man, but still apparently an oppressive soldier. Caleb will live long enough to see the good land that the Lord has given to him. We learn that in verse 13. So Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron uh, to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. And we say, well, amen to that. Don't we? All right. Now, if you're visiting, let's see. We've been preaching for a while now. You still have about 20 minutes left, just so you know. We preach for about an hour, okay? 50 minutes to an hour. So you still in? Everybody in? Okay, just want to make sure. The gospel. We've heard the gospel. We'll continue to see it. Okay, now I want to look at Caleb's consistency as a man. His dedication during the working years and his determination here we see in the weaker years of life. And it's all rooted in the word of God. It's all rooted in the truth of God, the promises of God. Now, the commitment of his early life matched his, consistent, his consistency midlife. It's very important. We see continuity throughout. Not only was he committed at 40 when he went in as a faithful spy, but he was consistent at 60, 70, and here at 85 years of age to the point where he could look back at his life in verse 8 and say, I have wholly followed the Lord. That, I want to be able to say that. As I conveyed to my wife the other day, I, I hope I remain faithful. She goes, I'm sure you will. I says, but only by the grace of God will I. Only by the grace of God. Don't ever look at Old Testament saints and say, how could they do that? You're next. <laughs> these things, the New Testament tells us, these things the Old Testament was written for, our instruction. Because you too will fail if you dare to do this in your own strength. So he says, I have wholly followed the Lord, verse 8. During his young years, now in his twilight years, that being said, there was no gap in his middle years. Okay? You with me? Now, the Psalms, they serve to describe many aspects of our spiritual journey. 
hitting on every emotion. I think you can find almost every emotion that we experience throughout the Psalms. And often, if we're paying attention, it's brought into sharp focus. And when it is, all of a sudden, we start to see flashing yellow warning lights for our own lives. Look at Psalm 91, verse 1. Our call to worship, I have it on the board for you. Our call to worship, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 5, you will not be afraid of the terror by night. Verse 6, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. At noon. Now, it is the agreement of many scholars that noonday refers to that part of life that is found Mid, midway through, in between the dawning of life, birth, and the closing of life on earth at death, night. The dawning and night, birth, death, the danger, it's those middle years. The middle years, what we call middle age. That is danger to the spiritual life. Okay, so young people, uh, all the old people are past midlife. Um, some of us wasted it. Um, some of us were faithful, but thanks be to God for his grace. Amen? If you're young, you won't want to pay attention. You're going to want to pay close attention here. Now, since the days of our life, we read in Psalm 90, contain 70 years or of due to strength 80, that means... Uh, midlife is 35, 40, 45, okay? And, pe and young people, 70 or 80 years, I know when you're young, you're, you're thinking, man, that sounds like forever. <laughs> Compared to God's eternity, it is nothing but a vapor. The older you get, <sighs> the more you'll realize that truth. Amen? So the danger of middle age for the Christian is not due to what we might call sins of commission, bad things that we do, sins that we commit, but rather sins of omission, things that we ought to be doing that we don't do. That's the danger, okay? Because spiritual things can be far from what they ought to be sometimes during those middle years, because we're just so busy. But remember this, it's been well said, I don't know who said it. It is much easier for us to identify the lion when it's roaring. <laughs> like to keep the kids engaged. <laughs> Than to detect the serpent when it's slithering into our lives. Ooh. End of quote. Consider those, for instance, who, who, who start out early on and they appear as Christians to be steadfast, hungry for the truth, ready for action, dedicated, diligent, standing for sound doctrine, fighting the good fight, making disciples, showing up every time the doors of the church are opened, they're present. You try to get them to go home, but they don't. And then they begin to disengage, to pull back, to drop off, and, and they spend more time and effort with their hobbies and recreation than they do the things of God. 
that can be a danger to the middle years. Dropping one or two things that we used to do for spiritual significance and then not filling those places with equal spiritual significance. That's a danger. The danger of those middle years can be deceptive. And even destructive. Psalm 91.6, the destruction that lays waste at noon and it sends the Christian, that Christian, to the sideline. They're living, but they're not doing much fighting. They're confessing the faith, but they're not taking new ground, as Joshua and Caleb did. They're not possessing new territory. Discipleship involvement both ways has ceased. They don't really care about being discipled, and they're certainly not discipling anyone else. That's the danger not volunteering to do battle with the enemies that remain, but going AWOL, absent without leave from the church. Caleb's noonday, Caleb's noonday were days of dedicated trust in the Lord, and he has still as much zeal today at 85 here in the text than he did at 40 when he went in with Joshua and said, and went back to Moses and said, let's take it. We can kill them all. Let's do it. Giants. They're the grasshoppers. We have the Lord. Caleb, a classic illustration of the fact that being a Christian is like running cross country. Anybody run cross country back in high school? I did it for one year. But all I could take. This brother still has his running shoes on at 85. Right? He fits the statement of Hebrews 11 that says, all these people will, were still living by faith when they died. They never quit. They were still running. Caleb is a man who started well. He endured. He finished well. That's a flashing yellow light because many people start well, fizzle, and then fail. It's my greatest fear, as I've said, because it was Paul's greatest fear. Just read Paul, you'll see it. You'll see it. The Bible's filled with people who start well but don't finish well. Lot started well, he did not finish well. King Saul started well. He didn't finish well. Demas started well. Teaching and preaching alongside of Paul, he did not finish well. Solomon, he's another story altogether. That's a sermon in and of itself. A guy who started off great, but didn't finish so well. 1 Kings 11, Solomon. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Was David flawless? No. But God referred to him as a man after his own heart. He ran to the throne of grace. He pleaded for God's forgiveness. 
take not your Holy Spirit away from me, right? Take not the, you know, the, restore to me the what? Joy of my salvation. Couldn't, you can't lose your salvation. Those who are saved, you can't lose it. He said, return to me the joy of it. Man after God's own heart. See, Solomon fell prey to an inflated ego. Inflated egos must be deflated quickly in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Corrupted worship. The end of his life, there was divided allegiance. That's what happens when you have a thousand wives and concubines. Nothing but trouble. The warning was there in Deuteronomy 17. You shall not multiply for yourself wives. So here, Joshua and Caleb, they, they start well, they finish well. Remember, they lived in Egypt together. They were in Egypt together. They're the only two who wandered in the wilderness, who entered the promised land. The rest of that generation died there. So they served as slaves together. They wandered the wilderness together. They entered Canaan together, and they received the land promised to them together. They triumph in Christ through and through. Isn't it great? They received their inheritance. They trusted God for it. They waited for it. They remembered it, and then they claimed it. Give me this lot of land. It's mine. God said so. Why, why do some guys pass over the Old Testament in preaching? Is it not beneficial to us? It's beautiful. So when we find ourselves, when you find yourself in a difficult situation, Christian, you may think, I think he's forgotten his promise. You know, I got some hanging over my head right now. I'm like, it's been a long time. And I'm reminded regularly that it's been a long time. I have to look to his word. I have to embrace the promise and realize that he's the promise keeper. He's the only true promise keeper. So if perhaps you've been waiting around 40 years for a promise of God. Keep holding on. Amen. Keep holding on. God keeps his promises. So again, the Bible is first and foremost, a theocentric book. And it highlights for us here in Joshua, the fact that God is faithful. He's faithful. So the Lord is saying, in essence, as I wrap up, look, way back in Genesis 12, I promised your great-great-grandfather Abraham that I would give you this physical piece of land. And here it is, city by city, county by county, plot by plot, I have kept my word. It's yours. Joshua, divvy up the land. So here in chapters 13 through 19, we see real tangible evidence of that inheritance. And in chapter 19, verse 49, when they finished portioning the land for inheritance by its borders, the sons of Israel gave an inheritance in their midst to Joshua, the son of Nun. 
in accordance with the command of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked, Timnath, Sarah, and the hill country of Ephraim. So he built the city and settled in it. These are, at the end of verse 51, we read, so they finished dividing the land. Our ultimate inheritance, beloved, is in the Lord. One detail that I skipped over intentionally was the fact that the, the tribe of Levi, they were not allotted any particular land, no special inheritance for them. The reason we, we read in chapter 13 and verse 33 is this, the Lord is your inheritance. The Lord is your inheritance. So that one tribe was to stand as a giant object lesson to Israel. And that is that their ultimate inheritance is not in a piece of land. But in the Lord of the land. The Lord of the land. Now the Levites will, will live throughout 48 cities in the land. Six of which were cities of refuge. That we'll look at next week cities of refuge, but they would also serve in the tabernacle. And later they'll serve in the temple as priestly servants who, who did what? They proclaimed the excellencies of the Lord. What is your role today? What is my role today? Look at it. First Peter two, verse nine, you Christian are a chosen race, a royal, what priesthood, the, the, the tribe of Levi was a tribe of priests. They did the priestly work. You are a royal priesthood, Christian, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's given us promises also. Great promises. Okay, and it's not a promise that eventually I'll be floating around in some... Uh, I don't know, ethereal realm, some, you know, just a, a, some spiritual realm. A disembodied spirit. No, our ultimate hope is to have resurrected bodies. He promised, he has promised that our feet, your feet, will walk on the new heavens and the new earth in a body raised up just like our Lord Jesus Christ. For a little preview, Revelation 21. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Does that mean we can't go boating in the new heaven and new earth? <laughs> well, if God created a sea with sea creatures, and he said, and it was good, then that doesn't mean there won't be any oceans or water. But if we read apocalyptic language, we understand that sea means trouble. There'll be no more trouble. You can debate me on it if you want. But if God, in the original creation, created sea creatures, why wouldn't there be sea creatures in the new heaven and the new earth if it was all really, really good? No longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself 
will be among them. There'll be no longer any separation between earth and heaven, but the city of God will come down, joined together, where we will walk in resurrected bodies, glorified bodies. That is our full expectation. Okay, your full expectation as a, as a Christian should not be just dying and going to heaven. That's good, but that's the intermediate state. The ultimate victory we have in Christ is a new heaven and a new earth in glorified bodies, and those bodies will no longer die, and even better than that, they'll no longer sin. <laughs> I can't wait for that. I really, I've said before, I'm really tired of myself. It, I'm not trying to sound pious. I'm serious. What, honey, you are too? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we have a joke, you know, you know, when we're do I'm doing some tests. I said, honey, I'm trying. She goes, yes, you are. <laughs> a full inheritance, new heaven, new earth in glorified bodies for he is our inheritance. So we will walk on ground that's been purified from the curse laid upon it at the fall. Who cursed the earth? The word did, God did, Jesus did, and then he came back to redeem it in a human body, to bear the wrath of God in the place of sinners, to redeem everything that was lost in the first Adam as the second Adam, the last Adam. You die either in the first Adam alone, you go to hell, you die in the second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, you're forgiven of all your sins, declared righteous with God, you're made right this way, forgiven this way, guaranteed a new heaven and new earth in a glorified body. Amen? So our hope, not unlike our forefathers, is a great hope, an even more glorious hope, for more revelation has been given to us than was to them, and that Christ has come and he has conquered. Our triumph, it's in him. He's our ultimate hope. So whether you're in the years of youth, the dawn, or the twilight years, you're close to the grave, perhaps. Or at noonday, may we all persevere towards and looking forward to the city whose foundations and builder is almighty God as promised by God. Amen? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, again, we thank you for your gracious word. We thank you for your redeeming love. We thank you for the difficult portions of Scripture where you order your people to wipe out Canaanites. Help us to understand that as we apply it to our own lives, knowing that the battle we face is not a flesh and blood spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So help us to put on the full armor of God to, to stand firm against the wiles of the devil, to have our running shoes on like Joshua and Caleb and run this um, marathon, this cross-country race, and to do so faithfully. But Lord, we need your grace to do so. We pray it in Christ's name. Together we say, amen and amen.